as we continue our sermon series, we are going to be in Psalm 22 today. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the 22nd Psalm, Psalm 22, in a message that I've entitled, The Fifth Gospel. Now, at the heart of Psalm 22, this, this has been known as, as David's gospel. This has been known as the, the Psalm of the Cross. And you'll see here momentarily that in Psalm 22, it's all about the crucifixion of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's also all about the glory that is on the other side of the cross. Now, here at Community Baptist, the, the very heart of everything that we do revolves around the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, went to the cross to die for our sins. That as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded when we look at the cross of two things. We'd be reminded of our sin and God's grace. You see, Christ had to come and die on the cross because we were sinners and we couldn't save ourselves. But the reason that he came and died on the cross is surely out of his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to, to make God send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And so when we look at the cross, we should always see our sin and God's grace. We should always be reminded about that. Even in our emblem, even in our logo, we want to communicate that from the very start. If you look at our logo, at the very center of our logo is a cross. Because at the very heart and at the very center of everything that we want to communicate and everything that we want to do is that an overflow of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We want to keep that central. Above all things, we want to make sure Christ is the central of those things. But there's a C around that cross, and what that represents is that we're a community of believers. But we're a community of believers built around the cross. We don't join together because we all come from the same socioeconomic background, because we're all of the same race, or that we all have the same affinity for something. Listen, this ain't CrossFit. Now, I ain't got nothing against CrossFit, but CrossFit has everybody come to CrossFit because they, they got one thing that draws them together, and that is, that is CrossFit. They all have that in common. Listen, it's obvious I ain't into CrossFit. It don't take long to see that I'm not, I'm not about that life. But we don't gather together because we have the same affinity of a same hobby. We come together because we're all sinners saved by grace. That we've all been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what gathers us together. And so, therefore, Christ is at the center of everything we do. And we're a community of believers built around the cross. But you'll notice that cross has an arrow in it. We communicate that we're a community of believers built around the cross that exists to point people to the cross. And that's the mission and the purpose of our church is we want to point people to Jesus. We want to tell about the love of Christ, the love that is so deep and so profound that he would willingly lay down his life for our sins, for my sins and for your sins. And so the cross is central to everything it is that we do as a church because it's central to everything it is that we do as believers. It consists in the central of the three main components of our lives. The cross is at the, at the center of our worship. The cross is at the center of our walk. And the cross is at the center of our witness. All three of those aspects of a believer's life, the cross should be central. It's central in worship to the point that is why God, that's why Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. That we would pause and we would reflect upon and remember one specific event of his life and ministry here on this earth. Out of all of the miraculous things that Jesus Christ did while on this earth, there is one thing that we are commanded to pause and to remember of that specific act. Well, two, the baptism of Jesus Christ and his death 
on the cross. The bread represents his body that was nailed to the cross, and the cup represents his blood that was spilled out for us. And he commands us to pause and to remember. So it is central to our very worship. This is the, the, the purpose of why we gather together, to point people to the cross. Galatians six fourteen says this. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, he said, we don't gather together here to, to, to boast in, in a program, to boast in our accomplishments, to boast in ourselves, to boast in, in something that we have been able to produce in and of ourselves. No, no, no. We gather together in this place to worship God by boasting in the cross. That that is at the very heart of what it is that we celebrate. That's at the very heart of what it is that we worship. That is at the very heart of, of why it is that we worship. The cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to boast in anything else. Mark 15, 39, God's word says this. And when the centurion, the centurion that had been at the foot of the cross, that had seen all the events of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ unfold, after Jesus Christ had, had taken his last breath, after he said it is finished and he gave up his spirit, it says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. When you see Jesus Christ on the cross clearly, it has a profound impact on your life to say, truly, that is the son of God. That's the Christ. When you get a perfect glimpse of the cross of Calvary, and your heart and your mind are truly receiving the reality of that, the only thing you can do is walk away and say, truly, that is the Son of God. That is the Christ. So that is at the very heart of our worship because when we look at the cross, we're reminded of who it is that we're worshiping, the very Son of God. Likewise, the cross is central in the believer's daily walk or when we live our life. When we get up early in the morning, we ought to be rehearsing the gospel in our mind and we ought to be reminded of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. The way we live our life, we ought to have as an overflow of it the reminders and the remembrance and the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians 3.18. Paul would say this, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, isn't that interesting that he describes the individuals that live in disobedience to God Almighty and to God Almighty's word that live in disobedience of Jesus Christ. He refers to them as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, they, they don't understand what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. And so therefore, they're enemies of the cross and the atoning sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the opposite is then true out of this statement. Those that live in obedience, those that walk in obedience, those that have a life of obedience, they're friends of the cross because we understand what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. In first service, we gave three ladies that had helped oversee the garage sale and were up here pretty much every night for, for, for 10 days or so, two weeks or so, getting everything ready, receiving, sorting, putting everything together. We gave them a bouquet of flowers because we wanted to recognize them that even though they didn't do it for that, they did it for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wanted to recognize them and say thank you for the sacrifices they made to be away from their families those evenings to make sure that everything was good. How do we say thank you to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us? A bouquet of flowers. Do, do we just bring a bouquet of flowers? How, how do you say thank you? God's word says the way you say thank you to Jesus Christ for what he did on the cross is live a life completely surrendered to him. 
It goes on to say in, in, in 1 Peter 2.24, 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see what Peter is writing here? He's saying that Jesus Christ didn't die for you on the cross so you can just get a get out of hell free card and go back to live your life however you want to live. He said, no, no, he died on the cross so that you would die to your sin and you would live to righteousness. That at the very heart of the cross is a transformed life. It's where we find fresh starts and new beginnings. That we don't go back to the same way of life. We don't go back to those same things that didn't fill us, didn't satisfy us, that left us broken, that left us feeling abandoned. No, we come to the cross, and as we place our faith in Christ, he gives us a new direction. He gives us a new life. He gives us a new name, and we become new creations in him. But not only at the center of our worship and our walk ought to be the cross, but our witnessing. How we witness individuals. When we share the gospel at the very heart of the gospel, it has to be the cross of Jesus Christ. It has to be. And ultimately, that, that's what Paul determined in and of himself. He determined in and of himself that that is what he was going to know and nothing else. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. L listen, far too often we try to get too cute with the gospel both in church and our presentation of the gospel. And when we try to add all of this flowery stuff to, to the gospel, we actually dilute the gospel. The gospel and the message of the cross and the power of the cross, it is sufficient in and of itself. God's grace is sufficient. We try to complicate the gospel. The gospel is simple. We're sinners, and we don't have the ability to save ourselves. And so God, out of his love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life here on this earth, died on the cross for my sins and your sins, and was raised three days later. And all those who call upon his name and place their faith in him will be saved. It's simple enough for a, a baby, it's simple enough for a child to understand. That's why he says you've got to have childlike faith. But yet it's so deep that you'll never mind the true riches of the gospel. You'll never get to the bottom of it. It ought to be at the very heart of what it is that we share. What about 1 Corinthians 2, 2? Listen to what Paul says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all, that's all I've decided in my heart that the most important thing is for me to understand Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. To understand what transpired at the cross of Calvary. That's the most important thing. I give myself over to that and that alone. Too many individuals don't share their faith because they feel like, well, I don't know what to say. What if they ask me a question? What, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know all of this. I haven't memorized Leviticus yet. You don't have to memorize Leviticus to share the gospel. Do you know that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself? Do you know that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins? And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work, you'll be saved. And you know enough to go be a missionary and go share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I didn't get as many amens on that because now the ball's back in our court, right? But all, far too often we say, no, 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 that's what we hired for you to do, preacher. That's what we hired you to do, pastor. No, no, no. You're going to stand before the Lord. Look, stop trying to professionalize Christianity. We are all called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that are around us, each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. You've got a greater sphere of influence than I'll ever have. Your pulpit may look different than mine. Your pulpit may not be in a church on Sunday morning. It may be in a cubicle on Monday morning. It may be on a ball field Friday night. It, it, it may be in a work truck 
Tuesday afternoon, but each and every one of us has been given a pulpit, and we ought to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ from it each and every moment of each and every day that God gives us. I love Isaac Watts and the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He would write these beautiful lyrics, these beautiful words. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, when you get a clear picture of the cross, the overflow and the response ought to be, I give you everything, Lord. I lay everything down at your feet. Use me for your glory. And ultimately, Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's what's known as the fifth gospel. Just as there are the four gospels that open the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so too Psalm 22 has been identified as the fifth gospel or David's gospel or the Psalm of the cross because at the very heart of it, it talks about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the psalm was written by David underneath the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's not about him. It's not about an event in his life that foreshadows the crucifixion. It literally is a prophetic word from David about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in the psalm, we are given the most detailed description of of what Jesus was feeling while hanging on the cross. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about what was happening Psalm 22 gives us an in-depth look into the heart of Jesus Christ of what it is that he was feeling. He felt abandoned. He felt surrounded. He felt desperate and overwhelmed. But then we see a transition in the psalm halfway through to where his heart skyrockets up in joy because God answers his cry in the most transformative of ways. And Our Lord in this psalm opens up his heart to us. We truly are standing on holy ground when we open Psalm 22 because God gives us an in-depth look into the very heart and the feeling of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the moment that is central to our lives as believers and to this church. Now, what we find that David, again, is not just foreshadowing. It's not an event in his life that foreshadows. He truly is prophetically drawing our attention to the crucifixion that is to come. We read about this reality in Acts 2, verse 29. Acts 2, 29 says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. So, so Peter, at, at the, the, the sermon at Pentecost, he's, he's preaching, and he start, gets to this point where he's talking about David, that he both died and was buried. In other words, don't put your, your hope in somebody that has no more power over the grave than you do. Stop trusting in, in, in somebody or something that has no more power over the grave than you do. David is dead, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30 goes on to say this. Being therefore a prophet, talking about David. So David wasn't just a king, he was a prophet. Being therefore a prophet, 
and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You can read about that in Psalm 16. So in Psalm 22, David is giving us a foreshadowing of an event that wouldn't take place for over a thousand years from the moment that he penned this psalm. Now, here, what else is amazing? Did you know that most scholars pretty much universally accepted that crucifixion was invented by the Persians in the 4th century B.C.? So 400 B.C. is when they start to see the form of crucifixion that the Romans would then become uh, the masters over. It doesn't even become into hi to, to human history or world history until 4th century B.C. Now, why is that important? Because David died in 956 B.C., a full 500 years before crucifixion was ever even invented. Yet there is no mistake in the 22nd Psalm that what he is talking about is crucifixion. A full 500 years before it was ever invented. A full 1,000 years before Jesus would ever go to the cross of Calvary. And we see these realities play out. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries us out from the cross. Jesus says these very words from the cross. Now, you have to understand something uh, uh, about that time and that day. The, the, the Jews that had the Old Testament, they didn't have chapters and verses like we do. That, that was an invention that came along later to help us to find different passages of Scripture. What they would do to call to mind a certain passage of Scripture is they would quote the very first verse of that passage of Scripture. So what Jesus is saying, he's not just taking that one verse and applying it to himself. What he's doing is he's trying to get all of those that are gathered there at the cross, all of those Jews that would have understood the Old Testament, that would have been familiar with Psalm 22 as we know it. And he's saying, I'm not just saying this verse applies to me. I'm saying the whole psalm applies to me. And everything that you see taking place in Psalm 22 is taking place right now. Now, the reason why he calls that to mind is because there's something far greater at work as we get deeper into Psalm 22 than just the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Read with me there. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, Mark will recount in his gospel in Mark 15, 29 through 30, the events that are transpiring a full thousand years later after verses 6 through 8 were penned. And those who passed by derided him or made fun of him, wagging their heads. Does that sound familiar? Wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. A full thousand years before those events would take place, David is prophesying about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at Calvary. Look at verses 14 through 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. John and John 19, 28 will give us a picture of what transpired at the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. David, a thousand years before, said that 
the picture of the cross. My tongue sticks to my jaws. In other words, I'm dry mouth. I'm thirsty. And yet a thousand years later, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will cry out from the cross, I thirst. It says all my bones are disjointed back in verse 14. Doctors say that because of the weight of the body weighing down on the joints of the shoulders that are trying to support the weight of the body because of the hands being nailed to the cross, that the shoulders would become dislocated. And that the arms would usually extend a good six inches further than they normally or typically would as a result. A thousand years before those events took place, David is prophesying about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Remember, the Persians wouldn't invent crucifixion for another 500 years after these words are penned. They pierce my hands and they pierce my feet. Look at Luke 23, 33. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. Crucifixion involves piercing or nailing the hands and the feet to a cross. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 22. Verse 17 says, I can, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments, verse 18, among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. John 19, 23 through 24, the man that was at the foot of the cross says this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also the tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Verse 24 goes on to say, so that... The, the, the tunic, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. A full thousand years before those events would take place, David prophesies about them. A full 500 years before crucifixion would ever be invented, David is prophesying about them. Now, I want you to see the, this reality that why it is that Jesus Christ did these things. Hold your place right there and turn to Psalm 44. Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 44. Hold your place there at Psalm 22 and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, we, we read these words. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deed you performed in their days in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the, the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread upon those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered among us the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors the derision of and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. 
All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. If for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now we know Psalm 44 is written sometime after a military defeat. We don't know where in the history of God's people this, these events take place, but we can see in verses 9 and 10 that it's being written after a military defeat. Look at this. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. So it's sometime after some military defeat that Psalm 44 is written. And in verses 1 and 8, we see that this individual that is writing the psalm is remembering when God delivered them, remembers the faithfulness of God, but yet in verses 9 through 16, he is hurling accusations at God that God has not been faithful to his covenant now. You ever fall victim to that? God, I remember when you were faithful to me in the past, but where are you at now? Where are you at now? Oh, I remember that Christ went to the cross and died for my sins on the cross, but what have you done for me lately? And we mock the cross by saying it's not good enough. God, where are you at now? Oh, yeah, I know all about that salvation thing. Yeah, I know all about that crucifixion. I know all about that cross, but what are you doing for me now? And we turn Jesus Christ into nothing more than than a college football coach. As long as I'm winning, you're in the seat. Soon as I feel like we're not doing what I think we ought to do, you're out. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ relegated to nothing more than a college football coach. What you done for me lately? I don't care about all the national championships five years ago. What are you doing for me now? How are you helping me now? Yeah, I know about that salvation stuff. I know about that crucifixion stuff. But I want more. That's not enough. Where are you at right this moment? Where are you at right now? They're blaming God for not being faithful to his covenant. And doesn't that happen to us? Our present sufferings that we endure and endure blind us of who it is that God has been to us in the past? We forget who it is that God truly is. Now, now look at this. this. This is the thing that I really want to draw your attention to in this verse or in this, in this psalm. Look at verses 17 through 21. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? You hear what they're saying? God, you've been unfaithful. 
I've been, I've been faithful. Don't we tend to do that? God, do you see all the evil that is outside? You see all the wickedness in individuals' lives? You see all the wickedness that is happening in other individuals' lives? And we get so focused on all the evil around us and all the brokenness around us, but we tend to never look at ourselves, do we? Because if everybody out there in that brokenness would just get it together like I got it together, we'd be all right. Or we try to excuse our wickedness because of somebody else would. Well, if they wouldn't do that, if the world would be a little bit different, then I wouldn't have to live the way that I'm living. But notice what they say. They say, when have we forgotten your name, God? When have we stretched out our hands to a foreign God? When have we been guilty of idolatry? Now, when in the history of Israel can these words ever be true? When Moses was given the law, he comes down the hill and they're having a rave. They, they're having a party. They, they've already given up. We don't, know where this, we don't know where this Moses dude is, so we, we just, we're just going to have a party. Was it then when God's people were, were, were never forgetting his name and never stretching their hand out to a foreign God? Could, could this be written about them then? No, he comes down and what they do? Aaron with the, the excuse my four-year-old would come up with. Well, we just had some gold and do it in the fire, and it's just golden calf. That sounds like my four-year-old. Well, this dragon came in. And... Nobody believe in that. Nobody believe in a word of that. Oh, may maybe it could be said about the people of God when, when they entered into or, or when the, the time of the Exodus happened. After they saw the, the Red Sea parted and they, they were through the Red Sea and saw God defeat Pharaoh and his army and they were in the wilderness. Then they don't even get three days in and they start complaining. This Moses, why are you leading us out here? At least back there we were eating good. Yeah, we may have been prisoners. But remember those onions and those leeks they had back there? Now listen to me. I've been in prison. I love onions. I love onions. There ain't an onion in the world that I would give my freedom back up for. And so let's go, let's go back to the penitentiary. Remember them onions? Remember that ramen? Remember that spread we had back there? I, don't, I ain't finna do that. Ain't nothing good enough for me to go back. That, three days in, they just seen the Red Sea party. Let's go back. It couldn't be said about them then. What about when they entered into the promised land? He said, get rid of all of those enemies that worship foreign gods. And they said, well, we got rid of some of them. And what they start doing, start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Could it be said about them then? Couldn't be said about them then. I know what about the time of the judges. Sure couldn't have been said about them. Everybody was doing what was right in their own sight during the time of the judges. What about the kings, the time of the kings? Well, let's take King David. He's the epitome of the kings of all of God's people. Look how that turned out. Not very good. But isn't that what we tend to do? We tend to point about everybody else's brokenness, and we say in ourselves when we go through times of trouble, but, but God, I've never forgotten your name. God, I don't worship idols. God, I tithe. Ooh, do you? Wow. <laughs> I read the Bible every day. Do you? That's impressive. Memorize scripture. I serve every day the doors open. I'm up here. Okay. That's good. That's great. Doesn't save you, but praise God for that. You see, in the church, we're so busy trying to look the part. Just want to look the part. We, we don't really want what God truly has for us. We just want to look the part. 
So we come in here, even though our lives are broken and falling apart, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. Or you come in here and never place your faith in Jesus Christ, just dwelling in your own self-righteousness. Just look, just look. Can I tell you something? I hate wearing a suit. Hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I, I feel like I'm about to pass out. This thing's so tight on my neck. And if I go down, somebody better resuscitate me. I don't care who it is. Go get my wife or something. And I'm telling you right now, it ain't COVID. It's this necktie. If I go down, if I go down, it's this necktie doing it. I hate wearing suits. But I intentionally walk through the foyer area and the hallway area in between services and before first service. And you know what I hear? Oh, you looking sharp today, Pat Boy. You looking good. I'll tell you what, you looking good. Sharp. Looking clean. Fresh. Look good. Smell good. Feel good. I might do a Ric Flair and three claps here in just a second. <laughs> and we can come in here and we can play the part and we can all smile and we can all play church. And we can say, look at all the evil out there. All the wickedness out there. But I've been faithful to that covenant. And the whole time, the whole time, you're just covering up a reality so nobody else understands what's really going on in your life. And the whole time everybody was saying, boy, he looks so put together. Well, he's got it. Dirt. We just trying to play a game with each other. We just out here trying to play church. When there's real healing to be found, when there's real forgiveness to be had, when there's real truth in Jesus Christ, and we're out here trying to trying to play church with one another, and trying to live our lives in, in such a way that that those scars and those pains and those moments that we have in our life, we, we just think, well, I just put a little band-aid on that one. Oh, all this pain and suffering that I'm going through, I can't be honest and real about that, so I'm going to just bandage that up. Just going just gonna to try to cover those things up. I'll just put a nice blazer on over it and, and just put my tie on. That way nobody knows what's really going on. And when you do that, you make the cross null and void because at the cross it says, I will give you true healing. I'm not calling you to put a Band-Aid on your scars. I'm not calling you to gloss over and be a whitewashed tomb. I'm calling you to surrender everything to me and I will give you a robe of righteousness and a signet ring to put on your hand and adopt you into my forever family. Stop trying to play church when you have true salvation at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what we look like to God. You can put on a blazer. You can put on a tie. You can try to fool. You can try to play church in front of everybody else. You can do that. But you're not going to find true satisfaction in that. But at the foot of the cross, you will. Stop trying to play church. When there's real salvation, there's real forgiveness, there's real transformation to be had at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, there's a radical shift. Look at verse 25 of Psalm 22. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Now, we've just seen the, the brutality and the bloodiness of the cross. Now we're fixing to see the beauty of it. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear me. 
those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Here in just a moment, we're going to take out the bread and the cup. Eat and be satisfied in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it in other words it's finished and here in just a moment when we take the bread and the cup what we're going to celebrate is the fact that he has done it sin and death defeated he has done it new creation where the old is gone and the new has come he has done it eternal life given free from all of the brokenness and the pain he has done it no longer I have to be a whitewashed tomb just pretending to have salvation, pretending to have everything together, pretending that I've got my life in order when everything is crumbling around me. I've got a Savior I can go to who knows the truth, receives me, loves me, justifies me, sanctifies me, and one day will glorify me. Why? Because he has done it. So here in a moment, when that bread and that cup is passed out, let it be a reminder that Christ has already done it. It is already finished. You don't have to live your life covered up. You can come and you can be real in this place to say, you know what? I don't have my life all together. Guess what? Me either. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a beggar that's found bread telling other beggars where they can go and find it themselves. Apart from Jesus Christ, I'm absolutely nothing. So I'm going to boast in the cross because that and that alone has transformed my life. And that and that alone is what we celebrate in this place as we take the Lord's Supper.